What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. Hi, everybody. I am Andrew Ross Sorkin. And in the next hour, President Biden expected to sign an executive order aimed at promoting a $15 minimum wage. We're going to look at the numbers and the reality that it makes any progress. Plus, trading volumes are through the roof, and it's not just equities. What's fueling this high level of engagement, and what happens if it subsides? And just one hour ago, Michigan made mobile gaming legal, not just for sports, but for casino games as well. We're going to speak exclusively with the CEO of Penn National. But let's begin with the markets this hour. And for that, of course, we turn to Mike Santoli. Mike, great to see you. Andrew, you as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, the market had a little bit of a downside wobble this morning, mostly found its footing. It's very mixed if you look at up versus down uh, breadth at this point. But so far, pretty modest moves in the indexes. Look on a week-to-date basis, though, of a bit of a shift in leadership we've seen uh, from the small cap cyclical stocks that have really been doing well back into things like the NASDAQ 100, those old reliable mega cap growth stocks. So this week-to-date basis, you see more than three percentage points spread there. Naturally, uh, these uh, are much bigger in the uh, S&P 500, those type of stocks. That's why we actually have more flatness on the index level. Take a look, too. Uh, Banks versus housing. Uh, Treasury yields have kind of taken a pause in their rise this week. They've come off their highs, and you see banks consolidating some of their recent gains. But, boy, a lot of good housing data this week, and obviously consumers seems pretty strong. So the home builders are up more than 8%. Also, a quick snapshot of semiconductors on an intraday basis. They are suffering here. Obviously, Intel coming off of a pop uh, of its earnings before the close last night, but also NVIDIA is down a little bit. Leadership group, not far off its highs. Did want to highlight, though, a little bit of uh, a crack there, Andrew. Okay, Mike, thank you uh, for that. We'll be seeing you in a little bit. But it is not just equity prices posting new highs in 2021. Trading volumes for stocks and options are also now at records. And for that, Bob Pisani joins me to break down what are really turning out to be some pretty surprising numbers, Bob. Yeah, it was been an amazing 2020 and 2021, Andrew, even better right now. So stock volumes started rising last year as stay-at-home retail investors started trading more actively. Okay, you know that story. Average daily trading volume went from 7 billion shares in 2019 to 10.9 billion in 2020. That's a 50% increase, most of it due to retail investors. This is all across all of the equity uh, trading desks. So far in 2021, that number is getting even bigger. 14.7 billion shares changing hands each day. Three signs point to retail investors as the primary reason that overall trading is up. First, the tape that reports retail trading, this is called the Trade Reporting Facility, or TRF, has seen a dramatic increase in the last year to a record percent of the overall trading volume. That's number one. Second, monthly trades at the retail brokers, the Charles Schwab's, the interactive brokers of the world, they have also hit a record. And finally, trading in single contract options have doubled in market share recently, particularly trading in just single options contracts. That's a sure sign 
that the retail player is, again, a major player in the market. Andrew, I want to point out, in terms of the volume, a lot of attention is going to the fact that, for example, retail investors are very involved in Tesla. What you're actually seeing, they are, but what you're seeing is tremendous amount in volume, what we call the lower rungs of the market, $2, $3 stocks, the bottom ends of the market is tremendous amount of all of this retail activity. So investors are hanging out in these chat rooms. They're seeing discussions on various stocks, and then they're buying them based upon a lot of these discussions. Of course, as you know, Andrew, that is a classic sign of market exuberance. And that's the question. Do we have a top? Bob, it's great to see you. Um, it's a longer conversation. And I hope we get an opportunity to do it. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Soon. But meantime, we have some news right now. Uh, the National Economic uh, Council director, the new one that is, Brian Deese, speaking at the White House right now. And we want to take a moment to listen in. Our economy is at a very precarious moment. Uh, we are 10 million jobs short still of where the economy was when uh, this pandemic started. Uh, last month, uh, the economy lost jobs for the first time since last spring. Uh, retail sales fell last month, and just yesterday we saw another 900,000 Americans file for unemployment insurance. Um, that's a weekly rate that is higher than any week during the Great Recession. Um, it's a moment that requires decisive action to beat this pandemic uh, and support the economic recovery that American families need. Um, that's why a week ago, President Biden laid out a comprehensive American rescue plan, a plan that is focused on changing the course of the pandemic, getting students back in school, and giving families and businesses a bridge to the economic recovery, while also addressing the stark inequities in our economy that this crisis has exposed. Uh, we have been engaging closely with members of Congress, with governors, mayors, business and labor organizations in the weeks since, and will continue to do so, and hope that Congress will move quickly uh, to consider this important uh, proposal without delay. Uh, at the same time, the American people are hurting, uh, and they can't afford to wait. Uh, they need help right now, um, and that's uh, the motivation behind the actions that the President will take today. Um, I want to be very clear, these actions are not a substitute. Uh, for comprehensive legislative relief. Uh, but they will provide a critical lifeline to millions of uh, families. Um, so uh, just to get into the specifics, the president will sign two executive orders today. Uh, the first directs agencies to consider a number of actions that will provide emergency relief for working families affected by the COVID-19 crisis. Um, within existing authorities, uh, and helping to correct some of the uh, errors or omissions of the prior administration in providing families with relief. Um, I just want to touch on a couple elements that are in that executive order to give you a sense of what we're talking about. Um, on the issue of food insecurity, which is a growing uh, crisis in America of hunger, 
nearly 30 million Americans last week uh, said that they didn't have enough uh, food um, to put on the table. So the President will ask the Department of Agriculture to consider taking immediate steps to provide nutrition assistance to hard-hit families. Uh, first, by increasing pandemic EBT benefits by about 15 percent. Uh, this is the, uh, the program that is aimed at supporting uh, families who traditionally rely on the school lunch program uh, to provide meals uh, to millions uh, of kids through their schools. So in the pandemic, the pandemic EBT program uh, provides direct assistance to families to cover those costs. Uh, but the way it is being implemented today doesn't get uh, to the full costs necessary. So with these changes, an eligible family with three children would get about an additional 100 bucks over two months to help pay for food. Uh, second, uh, increasing the SNAP benefits, emergency SNAP benefits for as many as 12 million low-income Americans. Uh, this is the core uh, program uh, targeted at preventing hunger in America. And these changes, again, for a family of four would mean about a 15 to 20 percent benefit increase. Uh, and third, uh, re revising the Thrifty Food Plan, which is really the basis for determining the SNAP benefits, um, is out of date and needs to be updated to better uh, reflect the cost of a, a healthy diet. Um, another element uh, of this executive order is to promote worker safety. Uh, and here, President Biden will ask the Department of Labor to consider clarifying that workers have a federally guaranteed right to refuse employment uh, that would jeopardize their health. Uh, and if they do so, they will still qualify for unemployment insurance. Uh, this is a, a common sense step to make sure that workers have a right to safe work environments and that we don't put workers in the middle of a pandemic in a position where they have to choose between their own livelihoods uh, and the health uh, of they and their families. Um, the second executive order that the, uh, the, the, the president will sign uh, is focused on the jobs of federal workers uh, and on federal contractors. Uh, he will direct his administration to initiate a process uh, starting today that would allow him uh, within 100 days to issue an executive order requiring federal contractors to pay at least a $15 minimum wage and provide emergency paid leave to workers. Uh, this was something that the president uh, talked about on the campaign, that when we're using taxpayer dollars, uh, federal contractors should provide the uh, uh, benefits and pay uh, that workers deserve. Uh, the order will also protect and empower federal employees uh, who've dedicated their careers to serving the American people, uh, many in very difficult circumstances during this pandemic. Um, and the steps will include restoring collective bargaining power and worker protections for federal workers, um, eliminating Schedule F, so-called Schedule F, which is threatened the uh, protections of career employees uh, and also provided a potential pathway to burrow political appointees into civil service. Um, and also promoting a $15 minimum wage uh, by directing uh, the o OPM, the Office of Public Manage uh, Management, to develop recommendations to pay uh, more federal workers at least $15 an hour. Uh, finally, just one final note, in addition to the executive orders that we'll be issuing today, um, we will be focusing on another key priority of the President and the Vice President, which is equitable relief to, relief to small businesses. Um, in previous rounds of relief, uh, too much of the support that has been uh, uh, dedicated to small businesses has left out the smallest businesses, 
uh, mom and pop businesses that don't have existing connections with a financial institution, and in particular, black, Latino, Asian, and Native American-owned uh, businesses were shut out completely. Um, and a lot of that is because the outreach and communication from the federal government was either unclear or just non-existent. Uh, and so uh, too many of those companies have uh, been denied relief, and many of them have had to shut their doors for good. Uh, the president is completely focused on uh, uh, on changing that, uh, and he has uh, he has directed us to uh, take immediate steps to make sure that we're listening to these communities, uh, we're taking their advice on how to improve the distribution of relief. Um, so just this morning, uh, I met along with representatives of the Small Business Administration with uh, dozens of groups representing black and brown-owned businesses uh, and other underserved communities, as well as lenders, to hear their ideas on how we can improve communications uh, and act on them. Uh, we discussed the president's uh, idea of having navigators who are uh, dedicated to helping small business owners find the right relief programs, fill out paperwork, get the money into their bank accounts, uh, the kind of support uh, that many of these businesses don't have because of embedded relationships that more well-connected businesses do. Um, there are some groups out there in the country who are doing this really successfully. Uh, we're determined to learn from them uh, and to scale those efforts uh, nationwide. Uh, and in, in this vein, I look forward, I will be joining uh, the Vice President Harris later today. She will be meeting with small business owners to discuss both the American Rescue Plan uh, and the need for uh, more effective small business relief uh, delivered uh, without delay. So. Uh, that's, uh, that, is, uh, that is today. Uh, that is our focus through uh, a set of executive orders. And I'm happy to take a couple of questions, of which you all have many. Uh, sure, okay. sure. Um, this is the good cop back up. Um, Kristen, go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Hi, Brian. Hi. Good to see you. Thank you for taking questions today. Um, I want to ask you about the call on Sunday with a bipartisan group of lawmakers. What can you tell us about the call? Will President Biden be on the call? And what is your message to moderate Republicans like Mitt Romney, who say the economy can't have another stimulus after you just passed a $900 billion relief package last month? Yeah, thanks, Kristen. So, so uh, the, the president has made clear to uh, his team that we should be reaching out uh, to members of Congress uh, from both parties uh, to make the case for the rescue plan um, and to uh, engage with them, uh, understand uh, uh, their concerns. So that's what we're, uh, we're doing, uh, both myself and uh, senior members uh, of the team. Uh, we have been doing that over the course of time. We'll continue to do that, including uh, the, the call on Sunday that, uh, that I'll be doing with uh, a, um, uh, a group of uh, senators, uh, and we'll continue that engagement uh, going forward. Uh, in terms of the, in terms of the, of the, uh, the, the message, uh, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, we're at a precarious moment for the virus and the economy. Uh, without decisive action, we risk falling into a very serious economic hole, even more serious than the crisis we find ourselves in. Um, and, uh, and economists across the board, um, including today uh, uh, President Trump's uh, 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 former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, arguing strenuously that now is the time for that type of decisive action for the economy, uh, and that we can't wait 
to provide the resources to make sure that we can open schools, we can get vaccine shots in people's arms, and we can provide that bridging relief uh, to families and small businesses. There's a lot of support. Uh, I, I met with a group of mayors yesterday, uh, uh, bipartisan group of mayors from the cost across the country. You hear from mayors, you hear from governors just crying out that in order to take on these crises, the public health and the pandemic uh, and the economic crisis at the same time, now is the moment for that kind of decisive action. That's the case we'll be making. And just to be clear, Brian, will President Biden be on the call? And if not, why not, if this is so urgent? So, like I said, uh, we're doing all uh, outreach. The, uh, the president has directed the team to do outreach to uh, members of Congress, to business and labor organizations, to uh, um, to mayors and governors, uh, and we're in the process of doing that. Um, I'll be having that conversation on Sunday. You can expect that other members of the administration will be engaging uh, with members of Congress uh, uh, across time as well. And just very quickly, Brian, if I could. What would a February impeachment trial, how would a February impeachment trial impact getting the COVID relief package passed? Look, I, I think that uh, we have faced, we, we are facing right now a period of multiple crises. And what we're going to need is to be able to act um, uh, on multiple fronts. And so that's uh, uh, certainly, um, we understand and has Jen, Jen has spoken to, we understand that uh, the Senate has a constitutional obligation uh, in this context. Uh, but we also have these pressing economic and, and pandemic priorities as well. So we're gonna, that's, that's why we're engaging. Uh, that's why we're focused on uh, making the case um, and certainly with the expectation that Congress will, uh, will heed that call and move forward. I promise to do a whole briefing after this, so just we'll do econ questions for Brian. Go ahead, Mary. Thank you very much. Uh, if you are able to pass this nearly $2 trillion plan, do you envision this being the last round of stimulus, or do you think you may need to do more? What I can tell you is if we don't act now, we will be in a much worse place, and we will find ourselves needing to do much more to dig out of a much deeper hole. So, the, so, so what I can tell you is the single most important thing economically right now is to take decisive action uh, uh, along the lines of what we've laid out uh, in this rescue plan. Uh, and you hear, again, from economists across the board, whether it's the Federal Reserve, uh, the International Monetary Fund, uh, and economic experts across the political spectrum as well. When you're at a moment uh, that is as precarious as the one we find ourselves in, the risk of doing too little, the risk of undershooting far outweighs the risk of doing too much. And that's the economic logic, the economic case behind this package. I think you've also heard the president clearly um, explain that his economic approach uh, is one where rescue and recovery need to come together. Uh, and he'll be speaking more about his uh, recovery plans uh, in the coming weeks uh, that are about building back better, an urgent priority to start uh, creating the kinds of good jobs that we know we're going to need coming out of this crisis. And after the recession, it took nearly a decade to get the country back to full employment under the Obama administration. If you're able to pass this rescue package, how long do you think it will take for every American who wants a job to be able to have one? Well, I, I would just point to you know uh, just one example of, a, of an independent analysis that was done of the American Rescue Plan by uh, Moody's. And what they said, uh, what they found was that if we passed the American Rescue Plan now, we could see seven and a half million jobs created just this year. And we could see a return to full employment a full year 
ahead of what is projected if we don't. So those are the stakes uh, involved. Uh, and th without this kind of decisive action, uh, we're going to have a much deeper economic hole. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that's why we are so focused on making the case for a decisive action now. Justin? Thanks, John and, and Brian. Um, I wanted to follow on Walker's question a little bit. The President's talked about seeking unity on, on this bill, but also being clear-eyed when there's policy differences. So I'm wondering if after this call, which is with sort of the bipartisan coalition that you'd need to get this bill passed, if you expect to know whether the White House will uh, pursue legislation bipartisan legislation or sort of head towards uh, legislation through reconciliation. And I'm also wondering if you could talk about what sort of red lines will be, the point at which you say, okay, if you're not willing to negotiate about this in the bill, we're going to just start working with Democrats, as, as Speaker Pelosi and others have encouraged you to do. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd say two things to that. The, the first is, if you look at the elements of the American Rescue Plan, it was designed with a bottom-up focus on what our experts saying is the actual need. What's the actual need to get schools open? What's the actual need to have a national vaccination distribution plan to underwrite the strategy that you heard Dr. Fauci uh, and the president talk about yesterday? And what's the need to support families and businesses during this transition? Um, and the second thing, the second thing is that as a result of that, I think we're seeing. Um, uh, a lot of support, uh, as I said, uh, bipartisan mayors, bipartisan governors, business organizations, chamber of commerce, business roundtable, economists across the board, saying this is a this is a an appropriate response to an unprecedented economic uh, uh, circumstance. Uh, so that's the um, that's the approach that we are taking, and that's the um, that's the perspective uh, that we are uh, bringing here. And I think that uh, we are heartened to see uh, that kind of support. And that's the conversation that we're going to have with members of Congress, be they Republicans or Democrats, including you know, looking at where we are, where we've come over the last year, and the lessons we've learned that without decisive action, uh, we know uh, um, uh, the, the consequences. And so now is a moment not to uh, undershoot or to wait and see. Now is a moment to act. I guess my question is, I think a lesson that a lot of that President Obama and others have talked about from the ACA fight was continuing to court Republican support beyond uh, a point of it being productive. And so I'm wondering for you guys, what is the decision point going to be where you, you know, you might have Republican mayors, but it doesn't look like you have Republican senators right now. At what point do you say this is, is no longer worth kind of pushing forward? We're, we are, we're making the case. Uh, we are engaging, uh, we're having conversations, we're listening, uh, and we are also focused on the urgency uh, and the need to act. And so, you know, what I can tell you is um, that's where uh, the president's focus is, that's where the vice president's focus is, that'll be continue to be our focus is uh, we want to um, uh, we, we, we engage uh, and we want to act, and that's going to be what guides us here. That's going to be the last one. But Brian, we'll come back. Um, thank you for doing this, Brian. Um, back to the point of the objections of some of these Republican senators yeah. who have already spoken out. They say they just passed 900 million or so at the end of the year. Most of it isn't even out yet. How do you know if that money hasn't gotten into the system yet that you even need to release more at this point? Why, why move ahead with a trillion dollar plan if the 900 million that's already been approved hasn't even gotten out there? Sure, well, well first of all, you know, uh, we waited for six months or, or, uh, or more before 
uh, Congress acted. And so really, a lot of what that $900 billion was doing was filling a hole uh, in the second half of 2020 that desperately needed to be filled. Uh, and so, uh, so it's, this, is not, this is not an issue of, uh, of, of, of Congress acting uh, too much. It's an issue of not acting uh, uh, enough. Um, and the second is, if you look at the components of the $900 billion, again, we could go line by line. Uh, but these are resources that are either already out the door or already or are addressing economic challenges or public health challenges that were in the rearview mirror. So as we find ourselves today, looking forward, we need a very set, uh, very decisive set of actions if we are actually going to get schools open, if we're actually going to get uh, a vaccination program. Uh, uh, up and running. And I think that the case that we will make is, is that today uh, we're not where we need to be. Uh, and if we go line by line in the American Rescue Plan, these provisions are, have been designed based on an assessment of need. Um, and we think they're going to absolutely be necessary. So, you know, I think that um, looking forward, um, we're quite confident that this is, this, is, this is the prudent assessment of needs. And I want to clarify two quick things. Um, how many federal employees or federal contractors are making minimum wage right now? Do you guys know? So I don't. I don't have an. I don't have an estimate of that right now. And then last night you said that there are roughly eight million people who haven't received their stimulus checks. Yes. How do you find them? So uh, it's a, it's it's a great question. Um, this is principally an issue associated with people who are non-filers, so they're not filing uh, um, uh, income taxes in most cases because they don't make enough money uh, to need to file uh, federal income taxes. And so as a result, the way that the um, the IRS and the Treasury Department uh, in the previous administration has has focused on getting those checks out has been to to work through the uh, the tax system. But those are people who, uh, who are legally entitled to those checks. Uh, and uh, so we have a number of strategies that we're going to pursue. Um, and that the, the today we'll start with the, the president's executive order uh, to direct the Department of Treasury to consider a whole range of efforts, including creating an online portal uh, that would allow people to easily identify if they're eligible, uh, to work through counterpart organizations to actually affirmatively do outreach to uh, communities where we know there are significant numbers of these uh, of these families and these individuals to let people know that they may be available. Some of this is uh, education outreach as well. Um, and I would just, you know, it's, it's a little connected to what I was saying about small business as well. What the president is directing all of us to do is to really focus on the affirmative steps that we can take, um, and an affirmative strategy to say it's not enough to just say, well, if if uh, if, if folks don't know or if they don't have a network, um, then um, then they're left out in the cold. We're gonna we're gonna work both directly uh, in what the federal government can do and with partner organizations to try to make sure that every American who's entitled to a benefit is actually receiving it. But if there's someone out there right now who hears you saying this and realizes I'm eligible and I haven't gotten it right now today. Is there a way for them to raise their hand and say, send me my check? Well, starting today, we're going to start a process um, to, uh, to make that a lot easier, a lot easier for families, including uh, uh, being able to go online and do that. But that's, that's work that's going to start today. I totally skipped the AP, so would you mind taking one more? I, I, I just want to. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just have one small question on the mechanics of the EO uh, targeting the food insecure. Does the USDA have the money 
to distribute these plus-ups that you're talking about? Yeah. Or is there going to need to be an appropriations from Congress? So these are mandatory appropriated programs, so they're, they're, there's no need for additional congressional action. Um, it's a change in regulation on the eligibility for benefits. Um, so uh, so these, are, these are changes that can be made under existing statute and under existing budgetary uh, authority without any additional action from Congress. The money's there, though, to... Yeah, it's a mandatory program, so it, it, it operates based on uh, um, the, the benefits are paid out based on uh, who is eligible. Great. Thank you, Brian. I'll be back. Great. Thank you all. We've been watching Brian Deese, uh, of course, uh, the director of the National Economic Council uh, at the White House there. In the Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. I want to bring in Steve Leisman and Kayla Tausch to get their reaction to what we just heard. Lots to talk about when it comes to the minimum wage, not just for federal workers, but for contractors. Uh, also a conversation about agriculture, the SNAP program, uh, and, and making people more food secure. Uh, Steve, your, your, your headline? Um, I, I think they're defending the uh, uh, program that the president has announced. Um, and I think the question at the end was very interesting. If you have the $900 billion coming, then why do you need the $1.9 trillion? Uh, and I thought Brian Deese had a pretty good answer. He said, we've, we've addressed issues that have not been addressed. I think these SNAP programs and issues of raising the amount that's going to people out there who are already receiving aid is very interesting. I was looking at some of the hunger data that Brian Deese mentioned, and people who are receiving uh, SNAP right now or, or um, uh, food stamps, so to speak, um, they're hungry right now. People who are working are hungry right now, which kind of argues for the minimum wage. There's new data, uh, weekly data on hunger, and it's something like 14 or 15 percent of Americans right now um, are reporting insufficient food. Hey, Kayla, curious what you think the agriculture industry is going to be saying on a day like today, but also all of the companies that contract with the U.S. government uh, based on what we've just heard around contractors uh, and the minimum wage going to $15? Well, I think it was interesting when Deese was asked specifically about just how many contractors are or are not making minimum wage, and they didn't have a number to actually put behind that. And then the other question about if there are 8 million Americans who qualified for but have not received their stimulus checks, how do you find them? And he acknowledged that it's going to be extremely difficult to do so. So while these executive orders uh, try to address sort of a, a miscellany of issues that are still plaguing the country, uh, it's hard to see exactly what the dollar benefit in a tangible way is and how quickly some of these things can actually get announced. I agree with Steve. I thought the newsiest part of that was when he was asked about how he will respond to Republicans who say, we just did $900 billion of stimulus. Why do we need more? And he summarized the administration's argument by saying what we did previously was retroactive. The package that President Biden has announced is proactive. And that seems to be a preview of what he has planned to say to this bipartisan group of senators that he's expected to have a phone call with on Sunday. That's going to be eight Republicans, eight Democrats making up this bipartisan coalition of sorts. He's going to try to get them on board, but the administration has been pretty 
forthright in saying it's not the final package. They want to hear from both sides of the aisle what they should cut, what they should keep. But that seemed to be the administration's argument. This is proactive. What you did before was reactive. Kayla, the other question I was going to ask is, what do you think the Republican reaction is going to be to some of the worker protections that they're trying to put in place uh, in terms of unemployment uh, insurance and the like? And the reason I ask is we've had a, a debate, raging debate about liability protection, for example, for a long time for businesses. And then there's an argument that you've heard people taking advantage uh, of, cert uh, of certain of these things. Well, I think it's definitely going to be a point of contention. And it was something that came up in March when one of those early COVID relief packages did address paid sick leave. They uh, believed that if people were sick or were exposed, they should be paid not to show up to work. But then as the pandemic went on and on and businesses started opening, they realized that they actually couldn't function without some of these workers if they were quarantining for the long term or if they were not willing to come into work for some time. So certainly this was something that Biden has addressed on the campaign trail during the course of this debate over the last several months. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the White House tried to put some of those protections in place. But how the the right side of the aisle responds to that, uh, I think, is also going to be predictable. Andrew. Kayla, uh, appreciate it, uh, as always. Uh, we're going to continue this uh, conversation right now. Steve, I want you to stick around because we're going to talk a little bit more about the minimum wage. And I know you've been uh, delving into some of the numbers. I uh, want to bring in William Spriggs. He's chief economist to the AFL-CIO and an economics professor at Howard University as well. Uh, good afternoon to you. Uh, you heard what Brian Deese had to say. Uh, there is a, a raging debate, uh, in certain circles at least, around a $15 minimum wage. Where do you land? Well, the majority of our states have now moved towards a $15 minimum wage. In real terms, controlling for inflation, that puts us below what was asked for in the 1963 March on Washington, as we celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday recently. And it puts us almost where we would have been if we had kept up with the 1969 minimum wage in terms of real terms. So. It's not a preposterous number. It's one that voters in Florida voted over 60% to implement as their state minimum wage. The evidence from economists has evolved and we've studied this in economics probably more than almost any other subject. And it's clear that a lot of people have been miseducated, including most economists, on understanding the implications of raising the minimum wage. Are you surprised uh, that Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart and the head of the Business Roundtable, came out the other day and said that uh, the organization was against raising uh, the minimum wage to $15? I'd note that, that in parts of the country, Walmart is not at $15. I'd also note that Amazon is. I'm not, I'm not surprised to have business leaders lobby publicly. It's their public engagement with a set of workers who aren't organized they get to organize politically against the will of the American people, because as I pointed out, it's very popular with the American people. But the evidence is clear. There, there really is no employment impact. Uh, the reason our studies as economists are, some say it's a little positive and some say it's a little negative is because when you take them in their totality, there's right. no employment impact. So a lot of people want to say, oh, you have 
studies on one side and on the other, but the proper way to analyze it is right. to put all the studies together and understand what's the average impact. The average impact is right. zero unemployment. Steve. Can I, can I, Steve, jump in, though, on this debate, though, because you have heard a lot of business executives say, look, uh, maybe you can do a minimum wage, but it should be local. It should be based on a local economy. Does that make sense? No. It, it does in part, but, you know, uh, one of the things that's most interesting to me about this minimum wage debate is this notion called monopsony, which is the other side of monopoly, Andrew. And what that means is that uh, businesses have a monopoly on buying wages, essentially or in hiring workers. Um, and when you get down to it, a lot of the local areas are the ones that where, where you, you can't go across the street to get a better job if you're more qualified. The, the real decimation of rural manufacturing, uh, which is one of the places where the, uh, the, the, the academics who have studied it have found it to be most acute, uh, means that you really want to address large areas. I, I guess I rise here not in opposition to a $15 minimum wage, but to urge some caution, and I think, Brian, uh, um, Andrew, your, your, your um, question gets at that, which is that states who have put it in place have put it in place slowly um, and given businesses lots of time to adjust. Um, and I think certain areas should be watched. I think teenagers uh, and, and the effect of $15 minimum wage on teenagers is something that needs to be watched. There are low-skilled workers. When you walk into McDonald's and you see kiosks and you walk into uh, Home Depot and you see uh, self-serve checkout. Uh, those are things that you want to just be a little bit careful about when it comes right. to raising the minimum wage too high. William, final word to you. React to that, because that is something that we hear regularly, and it does seem to be um, a, a genuine and legitimate concern. Well, I, I would say no. We moved away from where there are regional prices, the idea that it costs less to live somewhere, because so much of what we transact is online. You did an earlier study on e-retailing, and it's it's clear that we've really moved to national pricing. And the original arguments for regional wages was really an excuse for why the South, which is really the only massive region where you see this very low minimum wage, uh, had very racist origins. And the idea was that we could continue to believe in this Southern exceptionalism. The, the power of firms at the local level is greater. And in many of these areas where there is this claim that it would be upsetting, the, the power of the firms is, is even greater than in some of the larger cities. So I wouldn't agree to a regional Fair minimum enough. wage. William, uh, it is a longer debate, and I hope we have an opportunity to do it. I thank you uh, and Steve Leisman as well, of course, uh, for the conversation. We've got so much more coming up on the program today. When we return, Bitcoin heading for its worst weekly loss since September. Lawmakers are trying to rein in food delivery fees and why 2021 may turn into a battle between the studios and the streamers. That's all ahead. We are back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. I want to catch up on a few stories right now that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here are all-star cast. Mike Santoli is here, Julia Borston, and the New York Times corporate and media reporter, of course, CNBC contributor as well. Don't want to leave that out. Ed Lee is with us. First topic, folks. Tough week for Bitcoin. It is now on pace for its worst week since September. 
And uh, you can see uh, right now, um, not, well, what are we looking at here? Total price right now, even after some small gains, it's off more than 20% uh, since it's a record high. We're at $32,754 uh, just this week. We should mention that Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen warned that the government might have to curtail the use of cryptos to help prevent illegal activity. Jump ball. Is this thing going higher or lower at this point, folks? Oh, you want to do a Michael, you want an go? easy question like that? Um, I think Mike, it's for Michael, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, That's an easy one. It just shows you, um, first of all, yes, it's down 20%. It doubled in three or four weeks to get to the recent high. So just phenomenal levels of like velocity in terms of the, the price moves here. Very unstable in terms of trading mechanics. I mean, if you look at some of the ways people own and trade it, it's just not as seamless as other things. But it does offer a reminder that governments could, in theory, uh, really squelch this thing altogether. And not that that's uh, necessarily, uh, you know, imminent or anything like that, but just the whiff of it is enough to, to take some of the excitement out of the trade. Okay, Michael, just as a technical analyst are. that you are, though, is there, a, is, is there a floor on this thing? That's what I just want to understand. Oh. Then, you know, the, the next sort of technical floor, just so we understand, and also the technical high? Um, well, the high, I mean, the, the old high, whatever it is, $41,000, uh, until it gets beyond that, that's what you have to work with. I, don't, I mean, look how steep the angle is it went up. It's not as if uh, there's some level down there that it spent a lot of time with a lot of supply and demand changing hands and people figuring out that this is the correct price. It really is just crowd psychology in motion right now. So I think a lot of people were looking for it maybe to go back and test the low 20,000s just because that's where this last launch uh, started from. Right. Hey, Ed, though, how much of this was this, you know, there was some speculation and rumor yesterday that there was uh, a problem within the blockchain itself. There's a double spend, right? That also they, that there was a chance that, oh, you actually spent this Bitcoin twice, which was that was the whole point of the blockchain is to prevent things like that. It turned out to not be true. But the fact that that spooked the market enough to send it down. And I think that was certainly a factor in how it moved. But again, it just for me, it just comes down to I still don't know what the mechanics are, what the technicals are, what it's trading against. You know, what are people looking for? It's just I think it's the psychology is right. I think it's sort of a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy in terms of it rising. You know, the more we talk about it, the more people are aware of it. Hey, maybe I should go buy some Bitcoin. And I, I think that's what tends to drive this more than anything else. And I, I still have yet to see. It's still a mystery to me, um, ultimately. Um, and, you know, what the, where the technicals okay. are, high and low, who knows? Well, we're going yeah, to continue to try to unlock that mystery. While uh, go ahead, Julia. While Yellen uh, is skeptical about Bitcoin and is concerned, at the same time, you have Gary Gensler, who's President Biden's pick for the SEC. He taught a class about Bitcoin. So there could be some balance there. There's just so much uncertainty. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out between Gensler and Yellen. OK, and but we're going to get to the next topic now. But before that, just a programming note, folks, stay tuned, because during Power Lunch, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor is going to join the gang uh, to discuss his latest big Bitcoin bet. And that's going to happen at 2 p.m. But meanwhile, I want to get back out to Julia on this one. Hollywood's pain was streaming gain in 2020, but this year could be different. According to the Wall Street Journal, uh, reporting that Paramount Pictures now turned down both Netflix and Apple when they asked to buy its upcoming movie Top Gun Maverick. The company made the decision, believing it's going to be a huge box office hit for them uh, when, of course, and if they can get uh, in theaters. Their strategy begs the questions, is 2021 the year of streamers versus studios, domestic box office revenue sank just uh, last year to over, over $2 billion. That's down now more than $11 billion 
in 2019. Why don't they just put this thing on the new Paramount on the new Paramount Plus network? Well, Andrew, they certainly think they're not going to make as much money that way. And I would say it's not a question of whether it's streamers versus studios, because the streamers and the studios are one and the same in many situations. Of course, Disney has Disney Plus. They're going to be putting a lot of films on Disney Plus over the next couple of months. I think issue, the issue, Andrew, is really it's streamers and studios versus theaters. And what everyone is wondering is when people are really going to be getting back into theaters in any meaningful numbers. We just saw the delay of the James Bond movie, which was delayed from April. It was one of the first movies that was delayed due to COVID, big first movies, um, James Bond, No Time to Die. That was delayed until October. So the expectation now is that we're not really going to be seeing audiences en masse go back to theaters until the fall. And I think that's what everyone's going to be watching. And Andrew, the question is, these HBO Max movies, are people going to go see them in theaters when they're also available online? And that's something everyone, streamers, studios, theaters, is going to be watching incredibly closely. Fascinating. Okay, new topic for us. Lawmakers, they are getting fed up. Boy, are they getting fed up with food delivery fees. I'm fed up with them, too. The New York State Senate just passed two bills aimed at curtailing them, including blocking any fees totaling more than 15% of the order. This comes as some restaurants claim, and I think rightly, that they're seeing a big uptick in service charges. Some people claiming that 50% of the, the bill you're getting, folks, is actually from DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatnot. Uh, how does this change the game, Ed? I mean, look, I think a lot of restaurants are hurting, period, just because of the pandemic. I mean, we used to when we used to order out, we would just we wouldn't call the restaurant first because, you know, they actually make more. They hold on to more of their their ticket once you order directly from them. But once the pandemic hit, what ended up happening is they had to let a lot of their delivery guys go and they ended up working for Uber and DoorDash and Grubhub. So then, you know, if you call the restaurant, they're like, no, you got to do it through DoorDash. And, you know, they were sort of kind of held a little bit hostage by these services. So. With these new bills in place or potential bills coming in place where they want to curb how much they can charge uh, the restaurant for these delivery fees, I mean, hopefully that'll help out the restaurants. But again, like these delivery guys, they're they, but low or no margins in a, in a lot of these cases for them as well. Right. So I think it's another case of will they be able to get enough sort of subscribers on one end, meaning customers, as well as restaurants at the right. other end to sort of make up for that or get to that volume because it's ultimately going to be a volume play for these guys. Fair enough. Michael, Michael, the question, though, is you want to own these stocks if the law is coming at you. Not really. And what's fascinating is on every side of this transaction, people are unhappy and think they're getting the short end of it, right? The restaurants feel like they're paying too much. Customers feel like it's a bit of a ripoff if they get the fees passed through. And then the middlemen themselves, the delivery services, are not on a bottom line basis making any money off this. It just turns out it's an expensive proposition to deliver things on a very, you know, inexpensive meals uh, at low margin to start with. So, you know, DoorDash has done great, but that's just because of retail investor recognition. It was this hot IPO. Uh, so we'll see if that really continues once they have to really prove that this business uh, is going to be able to thrive long term. What a rapid fire. Thank you all. Mike Santoli at HQ, Julia Borston on the West Coast and Ed Lee from his living room. It's great to see all of you. Meantime, uh, we're going to talk mobile gaming because it's now been live in Michigan for about, well, check your watch, about an hour and a half now. And it's not uh, just the expected names like DraftKings and MGM getting in on that action. Contessa Brewer joins us with that story. Contessa. 
Hi there, Andrew. Yeah, Michigan launches mobile and not just sports betting, but iGaming as well. Regulators awarded 10 licenses to mobile platforms that then partnered with bricks and mortar casinos, some of them tribal. Look, this is a crowded field of the names we talk a lot about, but I wanted to highlight Win's entry here. Its platform is WinBet, now live in three states after an $80 million investment last fall in BetBull. And like its competitors, it's applying for licenses elsewhere, say Virginia. Sports betting launched live there just yesterday, but only by FanDuel, which got the head start because of its partnership with the Washington football team. This is very much like the Wild West. It's a mad dash to stake your claim, defend your territory, you know, find gold and then there are hills. With me now is the CEO of Penn National Gaming, CEO Jay Snowden, somewhat of a prospector yourself. Jay, I'm looking at the stock here. It's up almost 330% over the last 12 months. Do you think that there's still gold in Endar Hills? Well, Contessa, um, look, we just launched, as Andrew mentioned, an hour and a half ago in Michigan. That's state number two for us at Penn and our partners at Barstool Sports. So we're in the first inning here. Uh, we anticipate launching, being live in over 10 states by the end of this year. Really excited about Michigan. That's the alma mater of uh, Barstool founder, Dave Portnoy. He and Big Cat and the crew from Barstool are all hanging out at our pro- property in downtown Detroit. Greektown Casino this week, this weekend. Uh, really exciting. You know, we, we've, um, uh, this is state number two, so we're able to compare how it's going so far versus how Pennsylvania went. And we're off to a great start in the first 90 minutes based on the update I got just a little bit ago. Okay, you're launching the Barstool Sports app, but not iGaming. And and I, I've said a lot on CNBC, this is where the real potential for revenue growth comes in. Why didn't you launch the iGaming portion? Well, we're, we're working on full integration with our loyalty program, My Choice. So it's not months away. We're probably a week to a week and a half away from launching the casino. We'll definitely have it live before the Super Bowl. FanDuel, I mentioned, out of the gate in Virginia. How much of a disadvantage does that put you and, and your other competitors not to be first? Well, it would be great to be first. Um, we tend to be a pretty scrappy partnership, Barstool and Penn and we're usually the underdogs. We launched in Pennsylvania a year and a half after the go live date. Uh, we quickly, in month one, went from no market share to number three in the market, right behind FanDuel and DraftKings. Um, in December, we actually generated more revenue in sports betting than anyone else in the state of Pennsylvania three months after launch. So uh, we're ready for the challenge. You know, we'd like to be first, but it doesn't always work out that way. And uh, we're cautiously optimistic we'll be one of the license winners in Virginia and launching soon. Yeah, Jay, you mentioned that revenue, but you didn't have the best handle. Instead, what you had was incredible hold. It got a lot of attention because um, it was a lot better hold than your competitors, a lot better than you had done historically. Is that a trend we're going to see continue? Oh, look, hold is, uh, it fluctuates month to month. Uh, You you look at our first month of launch in September and we didn't make any money. So uh, it worked out for us in December. We got lucky. We had some really good VIP play and held well overall. Uh, our handle did increase, though, Contessa. So even if you're looking at handle, we had our best month of market share on handle as well. Still number three, but growing into the teens. So any way you look at the December results, really strong um, in terms of what we delivered in the month of December.
I, I want to talk about what comes next. We know that New York, finally, the governor has surrendered his longtime opposition to mobile betting. There's some talk about three downstate licenses for bricks and mortar casinos. Are you going to make a play there? And what's, come, what's coming next? Where's your next go live state? Well, look, New York, it's very fluid right now. Um, as you mentioned, I think the good news is Governor Cuomo made it clear that this is something that he's lo really looking to bank on uh, for budget purposes. And he had um, really been resisting online sports betting up until about a month ago. We'll see how that plays out. Some lawmakers submitted a, a bill right after Governor Cuomo came out in his support of sports betting and maybe doing it through the lottery. And the lawmakers came out the next day and said they'd prefer it to go through the brick and mortar and Native American casinos with two skins. That, would, in essence, would allow up to 14 operators in the state of New York. Uh, you should assume that right. we are working hard on finding our way into New York. And we've got some really interesting opportunities that we're working on. So stay tuned on that. And in terms of what's next, um, look, Texas, uh, there, there hasn't been conversation about expanded gaming in Texas ever. And uh, there's, they're not only talking about potentially land-based casinos, but there's a lot of momentum between the racetracks, of which we, we own a couple through joint ventures in Texas, the sports ownership groups, uh, sports teams, and uh, the leagues. And so it looks like there's momentum in Texas, Ohio, there's momentum, Massachusetts, and we operate in most of these states. So we're really excited about what might come our way from a legislation standpoint here in the coming months. Well, congratulations on Michigan. I know we'll hear more about this uh, earnings in a couple weeks here. Jay, thank you. Appreciate it. Andrew, right, thanks, everybody's Kentucky. got their elbows out in this space. They're really trying to uh, stake their claim and mark out their territory. It's a remarkable thing to watch. Contessa, thank you for bringing us that interview. Fascinating. Uh, meantime, uh, we talked about minimum wage, but another area the new administration also prioritizing is inclusion and the environment. As investors, we should say, have taken note since the election, sustainable energy ETFs are up dramatically. The administration also uh, asking the Labor Department to review a, a rule that had been enacted last year, which makes it more difficult for retirement investors to access the sustainability space. Jason Lehman is here. He's, the, uh, he's been helping investors try to find companies that match those priorities as the CEO and founder of Lenox Park Solutions. I note, by the way, we watched Brian Deese speak earlier. He ran the sustainability franchise at BlackRock, Jason. You know, one of the things that everybody's struggling, though, to do is to figure out which of these uh, portfolios or ETFs and approaches make the most sense, not just for the ESG aspect, but of course, for the returns aspect. Right. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Um, yeah, I think um, one thing we can sort of take away just from the first couple of days of this new administration is sort of the intentionality that President Biden has sort of uh, has shown um, right off the bat from the selection of his you know, vice president, who's a woman of color, um, the assemb you know, assembling a very, very diverse cabinet. So I think if we look at what the president has already done beyond the words and the rhetoric, um, we see indications of a real focus on impact. So, you know, if you look at the federal government, even with, uh, you know, $800, $900 billion of pensioner assets, I think it's not unreasonable to think that this administration is going to be pressing really hard to see how impactful are those dollars in the way that they are allocated. And that will, of course, Andrew, influence how the managers structure products and portfolios to reflect that impact, including the environment um, and uh, you know, okay. diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jason, do you, have, do you have any concern that all the re-ratings of these stocks, which you've seen over time, and by the way, Tesla's probably the greatest example of it, 
that, that perhaps we're in a bit of a mania around this. Um, it may be a long-term trend, but that prices have actually moved too far. Well, I think, you know, it wouldn't be unreasonable, you know, this isn't the first time that we're talking about impact, um, you know, in the ESG space, uh, space. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to, uh, you know, to, to, to have some form of skepticism. And Andrew, I will admit that, uh, that some of our um, LP and allocating clients do approach the ESG space with some level of, of skepticism. And so I think that there will be a lot of eyes paying attention. Um, but beyond the words, I think it's important to look at, you know, what's actually happening. What are people doing? And um, we've seen just in our business, we're a fintech company, and, and um, we've seen in our business a dramatic increase in the allocators and investors that are looking for quantifiable evidence of performance uh, with, with a social, through a social lens and tracking things like what's the diversity, equity, inclusion of corporate boards, yep. leadership teams at companies. So I, I think there's evidence that, uh, that particularly post-summer 2020, and candidly, you know, I think George Floyd was an inflection point. I think that, that uh, people are looking at this with a level of seriousness and you know, measurable accountability uh, that, that I think makes this a little bit of a different space. Fair enough. We're going to keep our eyes on it, of course. Jason, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so very much. And want to thank our viewers uh, for joining us as well. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.